no, no. I know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen? What's going to happen? For, for the time that we are recording, it's not going to rain at all. And the reason that it's not going to rain at all is because we're recording, so I can't walk the dog. <laughs> the second that we stop recording, maelstrom. 72 hours straight of rain. Yes. How do, How is your dog about rain? He's not a fan. He's uh, against it. He thinks it's stupid, which I don't disagree with. Right. But considering that's also his bathroom, like you, just, you, you gotta, you gotta figure it out, man. You gotta figure it out. Yeah, my dog is having a similar reaction, which is funny because we've only had her since sometime in June, so right, it has been a pretty dry summer. We have not had to really deal with rain. And I'm now realizing that she just will not go outside when it's raining heavily. Just no, <laughs> not at all. I'll hold it. I'm like, all right, man, <laughs> there's going to reach a breaking <laughs> point. Right. Well, as long as as long as we can hold to this, you know, contract, if you can hold it. Sure. I don't want to go. But outside it's my either. carpet. I'm the one that has to clean the fill in the blank Please don't defund us, YouTube or whoever. <laughs> Who funds us again? <laughs> funds. You're cute. You think we Steve have Steve Ballmer? Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> if he wants to give us money, I won't refuse it. How about we say that? <sighs> you drive a tough bargain, but I have to say I'm on board. Excellent. All right. Yeah. I, she won't go outside. I'm now learning this. I wanted to go outside after my run today because I was like, well, I'm soaping wet, sopping wet. So whatever. Sopping is the word. Yes. Yeah. Soaping is what a different that, word. That, that happened later. That's, but yeah, that's on our different. That's on our other podcast. <laughs> our alt channel. <laughs> you know what's up. <laughs> Getting all soapy up in here. Oh, that, I'm uncomfortable. You're making it worse. I'm slightly uncomfortable with myself. <laughs> I'm sure it'll all be fine. So yeah, that's the big struggle of today is getting her outside to to do what comes natural. It's weird because she's a lab and she loves to swim. And so I don't, like, why does she hate the rain but love to swim? I think that when they're swimming, it's like, I have chosen to dive into this pool. I have made the motion that makes me drenched. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're walking in the rain, they're more like I'm being assaulted by nature. And that I feel a similar way about rain. <laughs> so I guess that, yeah, like, yeah, if I'm going to jump in a pool, like that's my choice. Most of the exactly, time. exactly. And I have to admit, if someone pushed me into a pool, I would be <laughs> very offended. I don't understand why anyone all time in history has been okay with we're going to push Dave into the pool. It's going to be hilarious. Well, have you met Dave? I mean, not that Dave. Oh, oh, the, okay. The generic Dave. Okay. Okay. Because I mean, we know what Dave did at last year's Christmas party and it was not pretty. No, no. They had to completely replace that Chiminera. <laughs> I didn't know a speculum could do that. Oh, oh, I've made it worse again, haven't I? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> All right. 
Oh, we'll do the thing then. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. Every day I open my optical sensing orbs, unplug my charging cable for my phone, of course, and of course, of course and start the morning with a piping hot cup of roasted and crushed plant matter soaked in water. Just like you. Normal human stuff. Hooray. With me is Chris, who's also here. Hi, Chris. I'm also drinking a piping hot cup of roasted and crushed plant matter soaked in water. So for once, I can relate. Wow. All right. See, I know. Crossing the divide. I'm scared, too. (laughs) We'll get through this together. Let's talk about some tech garbage, shall we? Let's. Let's. So this is a topic that came up on uh, not last week's episode. This might have been two weeks ago. But we were talking about stuff. I think it might have been Smartnix. Who knows? And in talking through Smartnix, we actually ended up finding three or four other topics to talk about. And this was one of them. And it was that best practices don't exist. So I thought since we came up with these topics, we could actually use them on later episodes. Look at that. What a wild idea. Yeah, I thought so. And this is something that's actually come up before in multiple conversations. And, you know, I titled it Best Practices Are an Illusion. And um, I wanted to tack on to that a fun joke. You want to hear a joke? You like jokes? I do. I didn't know that you knew any. What's a consultant's favorite thing to say? That'll be $500? It depends. Oh, right. (laughs) See, it's got two meanings. That's why it's funny. So, you know, both of us have functioned as consultants in the past. And to a certain degree, are still continuing to do that. And a question that both of us often get has to do with best practices. And the questions will usually be in the form of something like, how should I properly configure my AWS accounts? How many should I have? What rules should I put in the firewall for this thing? What's the best way to secure all of my Linux servers? Or what are the best practices in general? You might just get that as a blanket question. So what would you say the best practices are? I'd say it's a valid question, but it has a deeply unsatisfying answer. You know what the answer One that makes people real mad. <laughs> That'll be $500. No, I'm saying, what was the other one? It depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends. And the reason that it depends is a valid answer and not like weasel words is just the immense complexity of one company versus another, the situation that they find themselves in, how big are they? What is the market that they serve? What is the data that they need to protect? All of these, what what happens in my head at least, and, and maybe I should explain this more. In my head, everything is a video game. So what I see when I talk to customer X is a bunch of sliders, you know, five or six different levels uh, or, or areas that have to fill in the blank from zero to 100. So for example, if you are handling financial information, 
Well, the security slider just went all the way to 100. <laughs> right. If you are uh, the flower shop down the street, the security slider goes to like 30. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that you want to be insecure, but the need for security is different. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you're a five-person company or if you're a 5,000-person company. Same thing if you work just within the state of Pennsylvania or are you a global company? This is why it depends is not a snotty, I'm just trying to bilk you for money answer. Because I mean, we need to know, we need to know your situation. Yes, and we're still trying to bilk you for money as much as possible. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 We can do both, yeah. but <laughs> right. The reason it depends is because there are no. It, it's really hard to have actionable best practices that are broadly applicable. <clears throat> right, and I I think that's actually the key. There is you want to do a thing. That's fine. That's a checkbox. It's the how that matters. Right. And the how is going to be very specific to your situation. Right. And that's where those two dangerous little words come creeping back into the conversation. (laughs) Exactly. How do you want to protect all of your uh, accounts? It depends. I want to protect them? Well, what does that mean? And then we get into what seems like a semantics argument But it's really not. There's nuance there that we need to dive into. And that's part of the discovery phase of any engagement is like, let's actually drill into those nuances and better understand the context that we're working within. Right. I thought it would be useful to sort of think about best practices in a more abstract sense and break them up into categories or maybe even, you know, since we're talking about sliders, this would be the zoom slider where you can zoom all the way out or zoom all the way in. We'll start at zoomed all the way out and then work our way closer. Now that, that metaphor is going to fall apart a little bit because it's not exactly a slider, but like, I think we can kind of work with that. Right. So I started thinking about it and I came up with four different categories or levels that I would look at best practices. And we're saying best practices, but you could use the terminology guidelines, industry recommendations, vendor recommendations, et cetera. There's a lot of different ways to say best practices. Right. But it's best practice to say best practices. That's what I've heard. So. So here we are. (laughs) So at, at the highest level, we have theoretical best practices. And these are going to be so broad that they're completely abstracted from any particular technology or implementation. I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Like when you first start out with cybersecurity, let's say, you don't talk about how to properly write a firewall tuple rule. That's too narrow. You need to zoom way out and talk about just information security at an abstract broad level and what you're trying to accomplish at that level first. And you've been studying for your year, like a C I I S P or whatever it is. C I S S P. There's a lot of, you're trying to hurt my feelings. (laughs) I can see it. I can see it in your robot face. Hey, my articulations are very lifelike. I'll have, you know, (laughs) I resemble humanity just like a Kardashian. Oh, 
I don't really feel that's that. a pop culture burn. Yeah, I was what we uh, were going to watch something on Hulu, and it suggested some Khloe Kardashian show, and both of me and Andrea recoiled in horror because that's <laughs> it was Uncanny Valley, but not actually. Right? No, that's just what she looks like. It's her, yeah. It's also her favorite granola bar. But thirty three plastic surgeries will do that to a person. Oh, I didn't know we were counting. Anyway, so when you're studying for this weird security certification. There's a certain portion of that that is at the theoretical level, correct? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, what you're talking about are just like kind of the the high level concepts that you want to get to as a business, right? So in security, you want to protect your data. You want to protect your users. You want to manage those users from the business perspective, meaning onboarding, offboarding, stuff like that. But it doesn't go any further than that because it's really up to each individual business how they go about it. Exactly. So when you read best practices like that, there's still going to be a myriad of questions when it comes to implementation. Correct. This is just setting, you could almost call them principles. You know? These, yeah. Just... And actually, that's where I have a real hard time with vendors because what vendors do is flip that conversation on its head and they say you have a problem and only our half a million dollar product can solve it <laughs> right they've made a lot of assumptions yeah well and they they insist upon those assumptions yes and we'll, we'll get to that as another category in here so we have high level theoretical these are just principles, axioms almost, that uh, apply broadly to technology. Things like security, things like data management. You can talk about data management at a very high level as well, uh, how data should be stored, maintained, um, what level of uh, compression maybe you want to apply, uh, how quickly you need to recover that data or read that data from a particular endpoint. Lots of theory going on there. Lots of theory around programming and proper programming techniques and be, writing good code. All of that can be done at a very high level above the actual implementation of a specific technology. Right. The next level we can drill down is tech-specific. So now we're focusing on a specific tech stack or area, something like storage or networking or a LAMP stack or something like that. But even LAMP stack might be too specific. So just a three-tier application. Again, we're not looking at a specific vendor implementation here, but we are focusing in a little bit and starting to apply the principles and axioms of the theoretical level down to a specific area like storage or networking. So again, that's, that's where you would start talking about thinking about networking from a flow standpoint. Where is traffic coming from? Where is it going to? We're not yet worried around like specific firewall implementations or um, implementing BGP or how you're going to design, which vendor you're going to select for your WAN acceleration appliance. We're still just talking about general flows, general network principles. I think I would include firewall rules as part of that. We could even talk about some specific protocols, but still stay away from vendor-specific implementations. 
Sure. Some of that gets a little muddied, and you kind of indicated this when it comes to vendors. Uh, Cisco would be a great example of a company that has muddied the waters when it comes to the division from the tech-specific to the vendor-specific, because so much of their so much of their technology stack is based off of standards, but they've enhanced those standards in some cases with proprietary technology. And a lot of people get their start in networking by achieving a CCNA certification, which will teach you a lot of really good general networking principles, but also teaches you a lot of Cisco-specific principles. And the line between those two is often blurred. Instead of taking something like Network Plus from CompTIA, which is supposed to be vendor neutral. Right. I mean, networking makes it tough because so much of industry networking is Cisco. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, I, I completely agree because you can have a totally successful organization that only runs non-Cisco networking hardware. It exists. It certainly does. Some some your your CCIE or your CCNA might not help as much in that situation, but there's certainly it'll still help. Yeah, I was gonna say they're certainly learning <clears throat> a lot when they are getting those certifications about networking that is not Cisco specific. So if you're trying to understand various routing protocols like BGP or ISIS or something like that, or OSPF is the other like big one. If you're trying to understand those, those are all part of the CCNP routing and switching. So you're going right. to learn that. But you're also going to learn like EIGRP, which is a Cisco-specific protocol. I knew that. Sure you did. I only know that because I studied for my CCNP and did not pass. <laughs> That's a long drawn out story that we do. Not, I do not need to recount now. Uh, but it turns out the really short version of the story is that um, Ned is not in the list of acceptable nicknames for Edward. So if you register under your nickname and it's not in the acceptable acceptable lists of nicknames for your given name, your legal name, they won't let you take the exam. But. Ned has been a nickname for Edward since at least the 1200s. No, it hasn't. <laughs> Sorry, I stand correct. <laughs> at least that's what the person at the testing center told me. Anyway, uh, that's a very... Anyway, uh, so to get back on track, the point is that tech-specific best practices are going to be generally applied to a tech stack of some kind or a specific area, but they're not a vendor-specific implementation. And you'll usually find these best practices from industry groups that have come together to create standards like the uh, IEEE or IETF or any of those sort of working groups that are out there defining standards like Ethernet or TCP I'm sure there's storage-specific protocols like NFS that are also vendor-neutral. And so there will be best practices around NFS at, uh, at that level as opposed to the specific implementation that you would do with a NetApp device that you have in your, in your organization. Right. And that actually highlights an interesting question. So, for example, when we looked into the quick stuff a few weeks ago mm – -hmm. I looked around at various vendors and to see what their best practices were around quick. And this is a, a problem when you deal with just a specific vendor. 
So for example, some would say disable quick entirely. That's their <laughs> best practice. Right. Others would say push it through this different channel, you know, try to do some type of at least traffic address IP based monitoring. Mm-hmm. So those are two dramatically different ways to approach the same exact problem. So how can they both be called a best practice? <laughs> well, I think that gets down to the last two categories, and I'm going to flip the order that I originally wrote them in because we've been mentioning vendors a lot. So the next set of best practices <clears throat> is vendor specific. And those are the best practices that come from the vendor. And in theory, they have tested those best practices against their products and determined that if you're going to use their firewall or their storage product or their email product or whatever it is, here are some best practices and guidelines for implementing that product in your organization. Right. But even those best practices are still general in the sense that they're specific to a product, but they're not specific to you as a company or your company within a specific industry that you function within. Yeah, and that's a key differentiator, right? So if you buy a storage backup solution, again, let's let's go with the extremes, right? So if you're a flower shop down the corner, your backup solution requirements are going to be very different than if you are Bank of America. <laughs> yeah. You might buy the same product. You know, some of them actually do scale to that size, like a, a microscopic installation, some type of like monthly fee versus, you know, a small company that might cost them $20 a month versus an enterprise that costs $20,000 a month. Not, I mean, I'm not making these numbers up. This is not out of the realm of possibility, depending on what you need. But the best practice for the flower shop versus Bank of America is going to be very, very different. Exactly. So a lot of this is going to come down to how you implement the product based off of your company and also the industry that you're in. And that gets into the fourth category, which is industry specific best practices. And these are not usually going to be specific to a vendor, but they will be applied to a vertical of some kind. So whether you're in finance or healthcare or manufacturing, whatever it is that you the vertical that you find yourself in will tend to have a set of best practices when it comes to implementing technology. A, a good example would be e-commerce. If you're setting up an e-commerce site, there are a whole bunch of best practices that you can follow in terms of how do you process payments? How do you manage inventory? How do you protect customer data? How do you ensure that your site can handle additional load? Like All those kind of things have practices that are somewhat well-defined and a lot of times there's an industry organization, a specific industry organization that will create some of those best practices and publish them for something like, you know, the chemical industry and how they should handle, uh, you know, uh, chemical processing it with <laughs> whatever it is that chemicals do. Well, I'm just thinking if you're in like the chemicals processing realm, then you're probably going to be dealing with a lot of internet of things type devices, stuff that's hooked up to a SCADA network. And the best practices around securing those and making sure that they're functional and meet whatever the specs are that are required for you know proper processing of chemicals, that's gonna be pretty industry specific. Right. 
Yeah. And some of the best practices along the lines of industry specific also tie into regulations and requirements. So <laughs> processing payments is a great example because if you're a bank, you have to follow much more rigorous regulations and prove it through auditing and all that type of thing than you mm -hmm. would if you were a grocery store, right? Because you use payment services as a grocery store, but that's not your business. Right. Well, so the, I don't I, think there's many grocery stores out there that are FIPS2 compliant, for example. It seems unlikely. <laughs> it would be an interesting t uh, turn. A good example of that was when I was working for a university, uh, we had an initiative to build out uh, infrastructure that was PCI DSS compliant because students would be using payment information to purchase meals in the cafeteria or items at the bookstore, et cetera. And so right. we did have to section off a certain portion of the network that would handle that. Uh, and then we started getting into the actual devices that were going to handle the payment processing and realized that if we were to hook up a credit card reader to a terminal that was being used, that was running Windows, you know, whatever, on the background. XP, come on, don't lie to the people. <laughs> XP, you're cute. Windows <laughs> CE3. Um, <laughs> oh, then we were responsible for adding that to the PCI DSS secure network, and there were a bunch of things we had to do in terms of patch management, et cetera. But if we instead had a separate credit processing device that we got from a vendor, then they became responsible for the proper implementation of all of those features, and we just had to provide the internet connectivity for that device. Right. And so the best practice was let somebody else do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is that is a decision that can be made as a business. Do you want to directly take responsibility for this or do you want to offload it to a third party? Exactly. A third party that may be industry specific. And so they're really good at following the best practices. Right. Or they have a ridiculous uh, monopoly and they're going to soak you for every dollar that you have. Uh, but you repeat yourself. <laughs> so... Foolish of me. It's early. It's early. So we've been talking about best practices. Why are they good? Why do you want to even have best practices if we put all these caveats and abstractions in front of them? And I, I came up with some reasons, and, and you can tell me if this makes sense to you. The, the main reason is that it, it at least gives you a framework and a set of reasonable defaults to start from. Reasonable? Reasonable. Reasonable. Re, re, reasonable. <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> I'm not French. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And this is, I think, a really good reason for you to start with the really high-level theoretical things are for exactly this reason. You want high-level concepts of what do I want my company to do? What do I want my company to focus on? And what do I want my company to protect you know, step one, two, and three. Those are general philosophical answers mm -hmm. that you can always have. And if the technology changes beneath your feet, the philosophy doesn't change. Exactly. I think that's the most important part about the theoretical category is it tends to be very stable in terms right. of its principles. So those can be your guiding lights when you're trying to make decisions further down the stack on how to implement something is to go back to that initial philosophical point and go, D 
do, am I still aligning with that point? And if I'm not, then I'm making the wrong decision in terms of implementation. Right. Without that guiding light, you can get lost in the minutia of how you actually implement a technology and get so caught up on that that you lose sight of the reason you're doing it in the first place. And you can also be led astray by whatever the new hotness is, whatever the product that comes out that has the coolest, you know, commercial. Right. But if it doesn't align with those core principles, then it just ceases to be part of the conversation. It makes the conversation more narrow, more specific, more around things that will make changes in in your favor as a business. Mm -hmm. So I would say you start at the theoretical level and you outline the philosophies or the practical points, or not the practical, the guidelines that will be part of all the decisions that you make further down the tree. And then we can start narrowing the frame to tech-specific stacks and start applying the theory and industry-specific and vendor-specific stacks and then apply what we know about the tech-specific and the theoretical to each of those each of those frames gives you a starting place and probably a f some further philosophy or a refinement of that philosophy, but they all lack the actual context of your organization. So right. That's that's the big that's the big missing piece in all of this is I can come up with a good starting place for a lot of these, but then I need to apply that to an actual company or organization. And they are going to have vastly different requirements and a vastly different context than what I assumed when I was coming up with these initial starting points. Yeah. And if anything, if anybody takes anything away from this, I hope that it's that. It's that best practices are always a generality. Mm -hmm. They are not specific to you. You have to define them based on the theoretical construct that you've put together for your company and then apply them based on how you can get to those goals in your own unique situation. Exactly. Now, best practices can also be bad. And there's a few reasons why. I think the biggest one is that best practices tend to ossify, but technology doesn't. Right. So what I mean by that is this really this usually happens at the tech specific or vendor specific level is you will develop a best practice that made sense where the technology was at that time but then the technology changed and you didn't update your best practice so you're stuck with these best practices and the procedures and processes that were built on those best practices that are no longer applicable to the latest version of the technology you're working with. Yeah, and I think that's crucial because one thing that can happen is you get situated, you start up your company, you're doing your thing, you get this solution in place and version 3.0 is working amazing for you. Mm -hmm. Then version 4.0 comes out and things are a little different. But if all your documentation is based on version 3.0, you've accidentally put yourself in a, in a, in a situation, you know, and it's not just one specific product. The same thing can happen with like NIST rules, for example, <laughs> they change, they get updated over time. And if you haven't updated them internally, then you're going to run into a situation where you're following quote unquote outdated best practices. 
And the trouble is the internet lives forever, <laughs> meaning those version three files are always going to be out there. Right. So when you search for best practices for implementing a Kubernetes cluster in Azure on Ubuntu, you might get an article from two years ago. Well, right. if you know anything about Kubernetes, it's that it changes has changed vastly over the past two years, probably the last one year. And it's been relatively- Probably since we started this call. Most likely. And because of that, best practices that were true and made sense two years ago are no longer true today. And so you do have right. to take any best practice and zoom out and go, why was it implemented this way? What was the goal or what, what were they trying to overcome? And then you can zoom back in and apply that to the new context you find yourself in. And this is why a lot of people roll their eyes at like what seems like banal corporate nonsense speak, like what is our mission? <laughs> Each organization within the company should have that set. And this is going back to the theoretical. I'm not going to harp on it, but for exactly that reason, because if you read the best practices for version three and they align, and then you read the version best practices for version four and they're different, then you can actually have that conversation. But- if you don't have that high level, this is what we're here for, this is what we're trying to accomplish, then what you end up doing is chasing documentation. And necessarily, unfortunately, it also means you're chasing the next purchase because the next purchase is going to solve everything. <laughs> it always will, at least if you <laughs> believe the vendor. Yeah, I encountered this a lot talking to Windows administrators and Exchange administrators that had cut their teeth on server 2000, server 2003. And they had built up these best practices around those products, like Exchange 2003 or Exchange 2000, or even sometimes 2007. But the architecture of Exchange and Windows Server changed drastically as you moved to 2008 or Exchange 2010. And right. so the best practices really did not apply anymore, but they were still trying to force them in into that box. I you must yeah, I know you encountered this with VMware deployments as well all the time. Yeah, and it's actually this is where you slide directly into the tech or vendor specific categories. If you're not an expert in this fill in the blank area, then mm. it might not be apparent to you how dramatically different the operating experience actually is. Going from Windows 2000 to Windows 2008 was such a huge tectonic shift that mm -hmm. people that aren't, and I'm not even a Windows expert, but just sitting down at that computer is phenomenally different. It is not applicable, right? But an outsider would just be like, what, it's Windows, what's the problem? Right, another real simple example is the idea of defragmenting hard drives. Like just to take it back, it's best practices, defrag your hard drive once a week. And that was certainly true in the old days of spinning rust and windows 98 right but as but it had such a cool graphic ned it really did look all the blocks are moving and aligning it's like tetris but i don't have to do anything but then you move to ssds and doing the same thing was actually bad for your ssds because you would just wear them out faster <laughs> right yeah again Somebody that's not an expert or somebody that doesn't understand this environment is just like, it's a hard drive. What's the big deal? Exactly. Well, it's it's a phenomenal difference between an HDD and an SSD. 
Right. So the best practices that you came up with for the laptops you were managing that all had spinning hard drives in them at one point is that no longer makes sense when all of your laptops have been replaced with SSDs, which I mean, let's be honest, effectively every laptop, new laptop at this point probably is running an SSD. You'd be hard pressed to find one with spinning rust. Yeah. If it isn't, what are you doing? <laughs> Replace the ThinkPad, kid. Oh, you can do it. I'm thinking about the one person that we did some consulting with and he had like a three-year-old laptop and he refused to give it up and it was monstrously huge and it definitely had like a 5400 rpm hard drive inside of it but it was his oh i'm sure he probably still has it and that was like 10 years ago anyway so that's why best practices can be bad one reason Another reason is if you don't re-examine your best practices, it can lead to what I would call checkbox security and compliance. Which we talked about last week. <laughs> exactly. So instead of actually looking at whether you're making your systems more secure or if the compliance is actually having the intended effect, instead, oh, I did that, I did that, I did that, I've checked all the boxes, so I am secure and compliant. I can go to TGI Fridays and have my uh, onion bloom. Do they have those? I don't really know. I don't go to those those restaurants. The Bloomin' Onion? Yeah. Is from Outback. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where it's from. <laughs> what? You've been found out. <laughs> I don't want to bloom an onion now. Uh, anyway. So here's the rule about the Bloomin' Onion. First of all, that's the only thing you're going to eat because it's 2,000 calories. <laughs> and the other is if you don't eat it in four minutes, it turns into nuclear waste it is a beautiful delicious work of art when they put it on the table stop chit-chatting just knock that sucker out I, because the longer you wait the mm, worse it gets the worst heartburn i think i've ever had it wasn't specifically from an outback it was somewhere else but it was the same concept and yes you really you got to get it in quick or it's just going to sit in your stomach for the next 10 hours. Oh, no, no, no. Regardless, it's going to hurt you. <laughs> It'll hurt you more, though, and be less right. enjoyable. So exactly. Maybe. Uh, so tying that back to best practices, <laughs> you got to keep them fresh, I guess, is what we're saying here. And you do have to reassess. So, so what you're saying is we need to start writing best practices about how to eat at Outback. I think that's where we're at right now. And we'll write it in Markdown <laughs> so we can keep it up to date. It'll be fine. The other thing about best practices is they abdicate your responsibility for managing systems because you can just say, well, I followed best practices. Right. There's a laziness and a it goes along with what you said before, where it's just checkbox consulting where you're just like, yeah, I, in, I implemented an endpoint user protection plan. Sure. Is it reporting anything? Is it enforcing anything? Is it, where's the, where can I see how many users have enrolled over the past 30 days? Mm -hmm. I implemented it. It was implemented. That's like a 10 syllable word. <laughs> can I go to lunch now, please? <laughs> Those onions aren't going to bloom themselves. There's, there's this phrase that people like to say, and uh, it was, nobody gets fired for buying IBM. The idea, you know, if you go with the industry accepted solution, you'll be fine. And you can always blame them if something goes wrong. The thing is, plenty of people get fired for buying IBM. Yeah. Yeah, it comes, it, it really does come down to being aware of what you're purchasing and what you're trying to implement and 
keeping it current, I'm I'm reading ahead here, but if you just say, oh, we purchased product X, we're solved. Look at these best practices. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. But you don't follow through with the implementation and the upkeep and how the product changes and how your business changes over time. You're asking for trouble. And trouble always comes calling. Yes. Yes. Just like the day after with the balloon and onion. So that's a whole different kind of trouble. That's a different podcast. <laughs> it's on our own. I think. I, <laughs> <laughs> so if you are in a position where you do need to figure out or implement best practices, some fun tips from those of us who have had to suss this out before. First, zoom out. Understand the theory behind the best practices before you try to implement them. Frame that theory around your specific context, and you are not going to have that full context just within yourself. You're going to have to talk right. to some other people. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really important because if you're building a best practice for your company, you need the input from all over your company. Right. And all different kinds of users, all different kinds of stakeholders. <laughs> At the very least, they have to look at the theory that you put together and say, we should do that. Exactly. The obvious ones are you need to get sign off from legal and compliance or your security. Those are important. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard from many important people that those are important. (laughs) But you also should talk to maybe the marketing team or the product managers if you're a software company. You should, I mean, you probably won't get to talk directly to the CEO, but you could talk to people who report to the CEO and get a feeling for the context of the business. And when I say the business, I mean how your company actually makes money. Right. And reading that gooey mission statement that you talked about earlier, you could actually glean some information from that. One would hope. (sighs) You remember when Google's mission statement was don't be evil? Oh, <laughs> that was cute. That was cute. So some of this context is going to come from talking to other people within the company. Some of it you can glean from looking through existing processes and policies because hopefully they have that high level theory in the introduction and then like sort of the summary page. The other thing to bear in mind is this is not a one and done situation. You don't write the pro- best practices chisel them into a tablet, and then they are true for all eternity. You, right. you need to reassess. You need to re-ass to... all the asses. There we go. <laughs> yeah, and this is why when you read some of the like larger uh, industry-specific but technology-agnostic things, everything's always built in a circle. It's always you go through steps one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever, and then you start back again at one. Mm-hmm. For all the things and all the reasons that we talked about, technology changes. Ideas about what is secure changes. Um, things that are even possible change. So you have to always, at least once a year or something on some kind of a cadence, you have to look at what was written and look at the environment that is and say, maybe this has to be updated because we're still running Windows 2003 servers and what are we doing? What are we doing? Time's a flat circle. (laughs) Lightning round? Lightning round. IRS accidentally makes business tax return data public for like a year. Hmm. 
I mean, look, I get it. Security, hard. But, and I'm just spitballing here, but I think that if you're dealing with people's personally identifiable information, you should probably be like, careful with it. A best practice, some might say. (laughs) Doubly so when you're talking about protecting people's financial information. Wait, what? No, these aren't tears of anger because it's been five years and nobody from Equifax has gone to jail. What do you mean? (sighs) Any hoozle. This week, the IRS announced that they had fixed a bug on their irs.gov website that had allowed 990-T information for any company that had submitted one to be accessible from the search engine. The 990-T is used by companies that are tax exempt for whatever reason. So it's not a huge audience, but it's not exactly a small one either. Anyway, the bug had apparently been undetected for about a year. Now, it could have been worse. The IRS claims that sensitive data like SSNs, income statements, etc., were not part of the breach. But this is still big oopsie for a government organization that absolutely should have been more careful. Good thing they're (laughs) well-funded. Cloudflare relents, refuses to engage with reality. It's kind of like the mealy-mouthed apology you'd get from your five-year-old after they hit their sister. They're not... This feels like it's based in uh, history. No, not at all. They're not sorry they did it. They're just really sorry they got caught. On September 3rd, Cloudflare dropped Kiwi Farms as a client and stopped offering them any security services, including DDoS mitigation. You might think this was because Cloudflare finally agreed that protecting a hate site was a bad thing. But no. They're actually reticent about their actions. If I may quote from a blog post by CEO Matthew Prince, quote, This is an extraordinary decision for us to make, and given Cloudflare's role as an internet infrastructure provider, a dangerous one that we are not comfortable with, end quote. Of course, when Mr. Prince of philosophy speaks of danger, he is talking about a theoretical danger, a slippery slope wherein Cloudflare becomes an arbiter of free speech instead of an impartial infrastructure provider. Not like the actual and real danger to people's lives that Kiwi Farms poses by doxing and swatting them on a regular basis. Cloudflare tries to make the case that they are simply providing DDoS and caching services. They aren't actually hosting the content. What the fuck ever. Chris, my erstwhile companion, sprained a retina from the eye rolling after reading the blog post. Cloudflare can do all the mental gymnastics it needs to do to get past the obvious moral culpability of providing any services to a site as heinous as Kiwi Farms. Doesn't change reality. This is a lightning round article, so I'll leave leave it to you with two quick points. Number one, I've moved my WordPress site to CloudFront for my CDN, and it was pretty easy. If you are in a similar situation, hit me up and I can give you some pointers. Number two, check out the linked post from Liz the Gray for more context around why everything Matthew has said is total horseshit. Yeah, have you ever noticed that when people talk about free speech, what they're really talking about is I would like to encourage my customers to do illegal things? (laughs) Or I would like to do illegal things. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. <sighs> God, he sucks. Anyway, LastPass gets hacked. But it's not as bad as it sounds. Hmm. I know, I know. The first thing that comes to mind when you hear LastPass got hacked is again, which fair. LastPass does not exactly have a stellar reputation when it comes to the whole don't get hacked thing. A quick Google search shows massive security incidents from 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, 2021, and now 2022. Well done. So that's bad. Bad. None of these events resulted in the loss of user passwords, especially master passwords, which is good. The master password is the key to the service. Without the master password, nobody can get to your site passwords. And the LastPass service was designed in such a way that LastPass never has your master password. This particular hack was bad in that a developer's account was compromised, leading to the loss of LastPass source code. But because of the way that the encryption works, that doesn't mean that any user passwords are at risk. Now, I imagine that there are other password manager companies that might benefit from this, but John and Jane Q Public probably don't need to be super concerned. Now, I am a huge fan of password managers, and I think everyone should use one. If you use LastPass, like I do, I think you're still safe. To be honest, the continuous security incident trend does make me think real hard about switching away from LastPass. But this particular incident doesn't make me think I have to do it today. I mean, I sincerely appreciate that LastPass is being as transparent as possible here with regular blog posts and updates and whatnot. But I mean, seriously, stop. Stop getting hacked, please. <laughs> Come to Dash Lane. We have cookies. Or we don't have cookies. We block cookies. You lied to me. I, I use Dash Lane and similar situation. They never store your master password. So you would, yeah, you're, you're safe as long as someone doesn't get that. And that would be, right. in theory, more difficult to do. And of course, you can have two-factor authentication, all that stuff set up. So anyway, VMware Explore happened. Yay. Yeah. Last week was VMware Explore in Vegas, formerly VMworld. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. And I thought we could do a lightning round review of the big announcements, some of which we may expand on as a separate main article later. Probably not. For starters, <laughs> since I like it when numbers go up, vSphere and vSAN 8 were both announced. That's one more. No, I'm so much happier. And we finally hit the Ocho. Really just blue ribbons all around. The big deal for vSphere 8 is the support for DPUs to take up to 20% of the load off the main CPU, starting with NSX compatibility today. So your hypervisor can offload those functions to a DPU, specifically around NSX, vSAN will be coming later. Speaking of vSAN, vSAN 8 introduces the express storage architecture focused on NVMe flash devices and new structures to support better performance and, efficiently, and efficiency. A new product family was introduced called Aria, 
which folds in vRealize, Cloud Health, and Tanzu Observability. I'm kind of getting the impression that Tanzu is slowly going to fade from the marketing since it has become the butt of a joke in most of the community. The Tanzu- Which is a shame. I thought it was a cool name. Cool name, but unfortunately, the moniker has been so unfocused and all-encompassing that it was rendered completely impotent. On the cloudier side of things, VMware on AWS now supports CloudFlex Compute, which provides a slice of compute from the AWS EC2 pool using a dedicate without using a dedicated physical host. Consumers will get a resource pool instead of a host, along with a lower price tag for VMC and more flexibility in terms of consumption. Now, noticeably absent from most of the discussion was the looming Broadcom acquisition and what it means for VMware and its customers. CEO Ragu Raguram says that VMware is different and special and won't end up like Symantec NCA. Bullshit. Oh, sorry. Allergies. Fine, I understand. There does seem to be a decent amount of innovation and updates coming from VMware Explore, but all of that was in development and the pipeline well before the acquisition. I suppose we'll have to wait and see what next VMware Explore looks like. Important question. Was it a super spreader event? Don't know yet. Probably. (laughs) Amazon decides that it's time to be responsible about reviews only when it comes to Amazon's own properties. So this is not exactly a tech story. It's more of a technology company has been a total failure for years, but decides that now something upsets their own business. Specifically, they decide to take drastic action for completely selfish reasons kind of story. Amazon, for some godforsaken reason, decided to be a content producer. This decision hasn't gone great overall. I mean, they did, I think they got an Oscar nomination for Manchester by the Sea. Sure. But anyway, recently they massively overpaid. And I mean massively for a bunch of Lord of the Rings content that nobody actually cares about. And they made a whole show out of it. The show itself is okay. I watched an episode and I really don't feel compelled to watch anything more. It's fine, but who cares about prequels? My Mm. God. What Amazon has decided to do is pause the ability to comment on that show. Oh, and they also deleted a huge amount of non-positive reviews on a product that Amazon owns that I didn't know they owned, IMDb. (laughs) Anything that was below a 6 out of 10 was essentially deleted. Wow. Yeah. I'd feel worse about this if there was anything about Amazon reviews that could even remotely be considered reputable. Amazon has 100% profited from fake reviews for unethical third-party dropshippers and the embarrassment that is Amazon Select. It is hilarious to me that Amazon is completely fine with shitty, unfair, fake reviews causing regular buyers to end up with subpar products, yet when it comes to Amazon's own subpar product, they get all defensive. Here's a better idea. Stop. Okay. I agree. (laughs) 
Web3 is in its infancy, still a very ugly baby. We haven't covered Web3 much lately, so I thought I would point out an article published on the new stack by Brian Platts. Brian is trying to argue against the current doom and gloom levied at the Web3 space, and he does this mostly by trying to distance Web3 as a concept from the stink of NFTs and cryptocurrency. He says that Web3 is simply following the same trajectory as previous internet generations, aka Web1 and Web2. And just like those previous iterations, Web3 is stumbling around like a toddler trying to find their footing. Of course, a toddler may grow up to be a contributing member of society, or a useless dilettante. Hard to say when they're so young. Platz believes that Web3 will grow into its own and provide vital services that replace the centralized approach to identity we have today. He says that in a Web3 world, quote, people evolve from being customers and simple users to active participants and shareholders in the Internet's protocol, governance, and operations, end quote. My counterpoint is that most people don't want to be active participants and shareholders in the Internet's protocol, governance, and operations, in the same way that most people don't host their own email server or build their own websites. Web 2.0 proved that most people are happy to trade away some or all of their privacy for convenience. Why Brian thinks people will suddenly change their behavior to use what is currently a convoluted and horribly insecure solution is anyone's guess. My guess is that he has money invested in Web 3. No! As usual, every example given for a Web 3 application could be solved without Web 3 using today's current technologies. The problem is not the technology. The problem is people and institutions. I have yet to see a distributed ledger change either. Well, hey, hey, hey there. Hey, person, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit on the couch, Suck on a chili dog, which is like super weird when you say that out loud. And ponder the eighth dimensional projection of a cougar melon. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the thing kind of thing that you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts are still better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Okay, so I need to send you a YouTube link, and I think it's going to make you cry from laughter. Um, what it is, is it's a Philadelphia musician who did Jack and Diane, but all the lyrics are, suck on chili dog. <laughs> That's going in the show notes. Thanks, everybody.